Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris. I'm joined today by Drew Tamendale. Greetings. Yeah, so it's been used to start a story since the 1300s, so this podcast is centuries in the making as we look at some of the many films telling us what happened once upon a time. Now, cynics have cynically suggested that this is a pretty weak theme to join together a bunch of films we fancied watching, to which I reply, yes, but aren't yes. they all? Yes, um, also one of, one of those cynics may or may not have been me. <laughs> But um, at any rate, we've got a little varied selection for you here. We've got your action films, we've got your wushu films, we've got your op- gangster opera films, we've got your western films, and your driving around the desert films to get through. So, well, I suppose we should just get cracking and get through this. We're kicking off today with a look at Once Upon a Time in the West. Drew, would you like to give us a rundown on that? Okay. <laughs> should probably put some sort of health warning in here for what's about to happen, but... <laughs> Now, 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 what's that time in the West? Railroad man lost his damn mind in the West. Henry Fonda killed a kid, <laughs> nothing less. Now Chuck Bust put his behind to the test. Then through the shadows, in the saddle, ready for battle. Cheyenne and his boys, and here come the poison. Behind his back, all the killing he did. Front and center, now where for jail that weird? Who that is? I mean, Branson, bad for your health. Looking damn good, though, if you could see it yourself. Told the Fonda is a bad man, but she don't fear that. Chuck got mouth organ too, ain't stopping to hear that. Trying to bring down Frank the big. Villain, well, y'all gonna see that it can be done. Understand me, son. Chuck's slick as he is, he's the quickest he is. Did I say he's slick as he is? <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> repurposing the theme song from a now, I am sure, mostly forgotten 20 year old Will Smith flop to introduce Sergio Leone's masterpiece from another 30 years before that, <laughs> proving once again that we have our fingers ever on the pulse of pop culture. <laughs> we should probably be slightly more concerned that we don't detect one, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Released in the UK almost exactly 70 years ago, Chera Una Volta il West, or Once Upon a Time in the West, came at a time when legendary Italian director Sergio Leone was ready to be done with westerns, but Paramount offered him a bunch of money and Henry Fonda, to which he presumably replied with whatever the Italian is for. Aye, alright then, you've twisted my arm. <laughs> While clearly a Leone film, it is markedly different from the more action-heavy Dollars trilogy and shows a greater interest in the build-up to violence than the violence itself. In another departure, though it's arguable how well it was achieved, the story is a woman's, even if she has limited agency. Now, in the unlikely case you couldn't glean it from my clearly exceptional introduction, (laughs) I suppose I'd better give you a fuller plot recap. The West is entering its final decades, embodied here by the progress of the Transcontinental Railway. Knowing that this transformative technology will eventually be headed his way, farmer Brett McBain, Frank Wolfe, has purchased a plot of land called Sweetwater, the only source of water for miles around that he knows the railway will have to pass through in order to replenish the trains. This makes Sweetwater valuable property, but his contract with the railway company expires if he hasn't built a station by the time it arrives. Something unscrupulous railroad tycoon Mr Morton, Gabriele Fersetti, is determined to ensure. To this end, he employs Henry Fonda's Frank, an amoral, cold-blooded killer, and his gang to scare McBain off. Being ever the expedient chap, Frank kills him and his family, rather than, you know, do any more work. (laughs) But unbeknownst to him, Frank had a widow, Jill, Claudia Cardinale, to whom the property passed. Frank then turns his attentions 
to this unforeseen complication instead. Two other figures loom large in the story, Jason Robard Cheyenne. In the script, his full name is Manuel Gutierrez, but curiously enough, this was dropped from the film because, well, Jason Robards. <laughs> a sort of bandit with a heart of gold, or at least tarnished bronze. And Charles Bronson's Harmonica, a mysterious gunman who has been seeking Frank. Cheyenne and Harmonica, who both have reasons to want revenge on Frank, band together, after a fashion, to help Jill and to bring Frank down. Once Upon a Time in the West has probably my favourite opening in all of cinema, almost entirely free of dialogue. Between viewings, I actually tend to erase the few lines spoken by the hapless, dangerously oblivious station agent, (laughs) as Stoney, Snakey and Knuckles, what names they have, wait in the parched town for the arrival of Harmonica, time marked only by the drip of water, buzzing of flies and the squeaking of a metal windmill. It sets the structure for much of the rest of the film. Slow, empty, hot, dry, until a sudden burst of violence punctuates the stillness. There's a minimum of dialogue throughout, Leone preferring to tell his story with sounds, landscape, action and faces. Especially with eyes. The eyes! The eyes have it right enough, and Bronson's are particularly expressive. And eyes also afford to film one of its most memorable moments, when the leader of the gang that has just murdered the McBain family is revealed to be Henry Fonda, his blue eyes striking against his weathered skin, right before he murders a child, a real casting against type for the habitual good guy. There are many to choose from, of course, but this may also be the great Ennio Morricone's finest score, generating incredible mood and tension while not being anything like as overbearing or prescriptive as in, for instance, Once Upon a Time in America. Shot in Arizona, Utah in the US and Sonora in Mexico, as well as Leone's traditional haunt of Spain, and at the legendary Studio de Cinegita in Rome, the film looks glorious, in no small part due to Tonini Delicoli's fantastic photography. Many of the striking landscapes he has captured, though, aren't of the West, but of the face, with seemingly every wrinkle and pore visible in Charles Bronson Henry Fonda's faces, telling a story all by themselves. And talking of the actors, Fonda's brilliance is a given, but Charles Bronson, while not of Fonda's calibre, is perfectly cast and has never been better and it utterly shames his later turns in that Michael Winner pap. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West is a master filmmaker's masterpiece, and remains one of my favourite films of all time. So, unsurprisingly, I'd encourage anyone unfamiliar with it to check it out at your earliest convenience. Yes, I like this an awful lot too, and I don't have, a, in general, have a lot of patience with westerns, but this one, despite being one of the longer uh, westerns that I've seen, really does drag you in all the way throughout it and it's yeah, as you say it's a tremendous opening which really does set up the whole tone and pacing of the rest of the film it's yep. a great little microcosm of it isn't it uh, yeah terrific stuff um, <laughs> the only good thing Dario Gento's ever been involved with um, <laughs> and and one of the few decent uh, Charles Bronson things as well yeah it's just just there's some really interesting casting and the performances as you say absolutely fantastic yeah there's a lot to like in this film and not really anything to dislike it's an interesting film to think about in terms of Leone's arc as well because if you're thinking of the good the bad and ugly in his previous uh, you know, the dollars trilogy that is a western that borders on parody at places it is 
not taking anything particularly seriously. But this one is much more uh, straightly told and probably more effective uh, for it. Um, you could argue you could have a bit more fun with the various films in the Dollars trilogy, but this is clearly a better film than any mm. of those. Yeah, no, just echoing everything else you say, great cinematography and great soundtrack. There's just a hell of a lot of things to recommend in it. Yeah, I, I think this is just the most amazing film. It had actually been a while since I'd watched it. I'm not quite sure why. Probably because I'm compelled to keep all discs on the shelf unwatched for a certain number of years mm-hmm. at a minimum. <laughs> but I, I'd never forgotten it. And I watched it and like, there's always that slight concern when you come back to film you'd liked a lot. Yeah. Um, after a while and you think, well, in the interim, I've watched a lot of other films. I've maybe changed a lot. Is this going to hold up? And the watch is like, wow, this is better than I remember, <laughs> which yeah. is a very nice surprise to have. And I'm, I'm I really mean, I, I, I cannot think of a an opening in cinema that I enjoy more. It's just, mm-hmm. it's so masterful. I mean, perhaps if there's one fault I could find with the film is that maybe there shouldn't be any dialogue in that opening yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could probably do everything that that silly old man does he's, yeah. he's not taking the temperature of that room at all um, <laughs> yes but you could probably do most of that unspoken i think mm-hmm. um without even having to excise the character but just the guy with a slight squint trapping the fly in his gun and then the the guy in the black shirt and the black cat with the water dripping on his hat and then that that squeak that's such an iconic sound yeah i, I hear anything like that i immediately think of the film that squeak <laughs> of the windmill it is the most masterful opening. Um, and as, yeah, as I said, you agreed, Scott. It's, it's like, right here, here's just like the film in a microcosm, and then like, the rest of it's almost like a, it's a repeating pattern of that throughout. Yeah. So it sets you up well for how it's going to be, but, and just that, that capsule of the beginning of the film, in those, what, five or six minutes probably? Mm-hmm. I actually meant to, to, while I was watching it, to keep an eye on how long that was. And after about 10 seconds, I was like, no, I'm just watching this. Yeah. I forgot to check, so I'll just, I'll just enjoy this film instead. Um, that short period, however long it is at the beginning of the film, that one thing is better than almost anybody else has ever made, ever. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. like, it's that good, actually. It's that assured. I wasn't sure if I knew whether you'd seen this before, but I know not so much a distaste for Westerns, but it's not by any means your favourite genre or anything so I was a wee bit concerned yeah. about quite how you would respond to this um, but even like for someone who's not a, a big western guy you're getting clear a lot out of this as well yeah I mean as as I say I, I'm no means an expert but this feels almost contemporary if I didn't know better in the way that it's structured and the way that a lot of it's uh, shot it feels closer to Unforgiven or the kind of more modern kind of western revival stuff which I've still which I've, a lot of things in, in that uh, little subgenre I've actually quite liked mm-hmm. um, with a bit more complexity to them and it feels closer to that than certainly my experience of like John Wayne films or these other kind oh, yeah. of uh, uh, the kind of the mass produced um, boilerplate westerns that kind of were shown so often on telly when I was growing up and was immediately put off and sort of discarded the genre I'm sure there's lots of great ones in there but uh, the ones that seemed to be the most popular were just simplistic garbage, and, and this certainly is not. It's uh, has a bit more strings to its bow than than a lot of the um, John Wayne stuff I've seen. Yeah, well, um, I wouldn't consider that a good you know, <laughs> yeah. a good comparison point because John Wayne was an appalling actor. Yeah, um, 
also an appalling person. So that matched up quite nicely. But yeah, I, I, I've never understood the regard for John Wayne, who, mm-hmm. who never played a card, who every film he's in played John Wayne. Yeah. But yeah, there's... And it's not just this, it's in the Dollars trilogy of Everett as well, although yeah, as to a degree there's, if not parody, it's certainly pastiche. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Dollars trilogy of kind of more classic westerns, but they are kind of grittier, I guess. But the Dollars trilogy onwards is much closer to uh, something like, like you see Unforgiven or uh, The Proposition. Yeah. And Three Billiard Burials of Melikadis of Strad, anything that's got to come at in the, the wake of Unforgiven definitely there's much more of a through line from them to that than mm. there was from the John Ford stuff yeah but there's it's just well, a simple mastery of cinema but it's still within that genre and it, it feels to me like it's playing a little bit with the with it a wee bit uh, maybe I'm just reading too much into this but remember you're aware of the whole kind of white hat black hat thing of course yeah and that feels to me like it's in this film a little but kind of playing with it the closest you have to white hat is charles bronson but it's sort of like a slightly grayish hat yeah uh, (laughs) whereas frank has a really dark hat um so i read that i i Maybe this is just conjecture, but I read that as like, okay, Charles Bronson's largely good, but he's got a bit of dirt in his soul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frank's the absolute villain. And then you've got Cheyenne, who's sort of a kind of brownish hat. It's like, yeah, he's not great, but he's not the absolute villain. Yeah. Um, so it feels like it's moved to playing with that and using that a wee bit, while still adding um, stuff that you certainly wouldn't have seen John Wayne doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, like subtlety. <laughs> Um, acting not being a chat yeah I don't like John Wayne <laughs> I think the only time I found him even vaguely tolerable was True Grit um, and then the Cohen brothers came along and said yeah we can do that better so you don't have to watch the John Wayne one anymore hey. <laughs> very nice of them isn't it <laughs> public spirited yeah it's a real public service that absolutely <laughs> I've entirely lost my point now though I've just gone down a I hate John Wayne rabbit hole um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it definitely has a much more modern feel. I mean, it's nearly the 70s, so it's yeah. perhaps not that much of a surprise when you consider just how cinema was changing That's true. in yeah. the 70s. But it is... Yeah, I don't have a further point to make. <laughs> it's really good. What we're saying is we like it. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to move on from that then to... Well, weird enough, we're... Moving on to another Sergio Leone film, which is apparently part of something called his Once Upon a Time trilogy, but that kind of feels like it was retrofitting, whereas the Dollars trilogy clearly was. <laughs> yes. This is sort of a trilogy in name, except one of the films doesn't have this name, so <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, it's like, well, it's the film he made in between, that'll fit. Um, <laughs> that film being A Fistful of Dynamite or considerably better name and docu sucker <laughs> uh, but no but moving on to leone telling a story that he'd wanted to produce for quite a while in america scott once upon a time in america that would be 
Yes, and this film, at least in the versions commonly found today, is not renowned for its brevity, so <laughs> I, I trust you'll forgive a less than completely detailed recap here. Uh, the film charts over the course of a lifetime the friendship of Robert De Niro's Noodles and James Woods's Max from their initial meeting as street kids in 1918, played by young'uns as Scott Tiller and Rusky Jacobs, where they form a gang alongside their friends Patrick, Patsy Goldberg, Philip Cockeye, Stein and Dominic, hustling away for local petty crime boss Bugsy. However, they get ideas of moving up in the world, bringing them into conflict with Bugsy, leaving Dominic dead and, after Noodles takes revenge, Bugsy following, with Noodles locked away for the crime. Released in the Prohibition era, Noodles rejoins the gang, now successful bootleggers, and rekindles a relationship with Max's sister, Elizabeth McGovern's Deborah. However, things are complicated, with the worlds of organised crime and politics colliding and backrubbing in various ways with tragic ends. The framing device linking all of this is 1968's older Noodles, long in hiding after the events of the 30s, getting a message along the lines of we know where you are and need you to do one last job, with the intrigue of who knows and what that job is, pulling us through these three and a quarter hours-ish of the cut that I watched uh, that unfolds over. It's epic in scope and ambition, and there's a lot of subtlety and nuance, as well as a lot of not-at-all subtle and nuanced events that I'm skipping over there. Uh, It is not a pleasant film, uh, for the most part, at least in the events and the characters that it portrays, uh, given the talent behind the camera, Leone and cinematographer, again, Deli Colley. It frequently looks really good, often providing a counterpoint to the ugliness of the actions and ambitions of the lead characters. It really is the perfect role for James Woods, as he is, by nature, an odious prick. So that's (laughs) top draw casting from real life right there uh, it's an exceptional De Niro performance of course with an extraordinary character that first seems to be drawing from an honour amongst thieves canard before moving to a much more compromised position to put it mildly um, I'm not sure how much I need to tell you about this despite it bombing at the box office or release almost certainly due to studio meddling with drastically shortened cuts and in the past few decades it's most often spoken about in the same sentence as The Godfather in terms of being a genre defining crime movie and well for once I don't have a contrary position to take it's a long film to be sure but like the West, it's one that needs all of that space to breathe and it doesn't feel like it drags at any point. It's exceedingly competent in all the technical aspects and in all the performances and very satisfying character arcs uh, throughout. If I'm going to pick a flaw, the revelation of sorts in the final act is... Well, silly, but even if that isn't quite truthy enough, narratively speaking, it has undeniable emotional heft. So, yes, also watch this one if you haven't already done so. Yeah, I love this film too. Uh, this will perhaps come as no surprise. <laughs> Although I did mention on a podcast, I forget which exactly. Oh, no, I do know which one. The one which we covered Salvador and De Filsjong. Right, yes. That this had always been one of my favourite films, but I hadn't returned to it in quite a while because I was afraid, again, yeah. that I might not <laughs> like it so much, but for a very particular reason, and that's what I was worried James Wood was ruin, would ruin it for me. <laughs> yes. James Woods sort of ruined it for me. Um, <laughs> to a degree. It does help that yeah, he, he's supposed to be a, a quite odious character, although he's not actually quite as bad a character as Robert De Niro is. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, he doesn't um, wonder why the woman he just raped doesn't want to have anything to do with him or that sort of thing. You know, he's yes. um, he actually comes out of this better character-wise. <laughs> yeah, it's, again, it's just another masterpiece. The the running time was never an issue for me. I do remember the first time I saw this was on Channel 4 and it was, curious enough, split into two parts. Um, mm. Not a surprise. And it always works like that. The I think nowadays, actually, this would be a miniseries. Yeah. 
this would be absolutely something you can see being an HBO. Whereas in the past, a, a lot of the big difference between film and television was quality, mm. both in scope and like in production and stuff. Whereas that difference doesn't really exist nowadays. No, certainly well, not to the same degree. Certainly, certainly. This like look at Broadwalk Empire and yeah, yeah, most of the um, way there, yeah. This actually made me think a lot of Boardwalk Empire in a few, quite a few places, uh, inevitably given the the time and place. Yeah. Um, but it is where was I going with this? So it was BT. Yes, it feels like it should, kind of would fit TV because Leone's original idea was that it would be six hours long. Yeah, <laughs> um, working down from eight hours, and uh, his original cut was two hundred sixty nine minutes. That version sort of disappeared. Mm. Um, and still doesn't exist. That there's a a newer version that was released at Cannes in 2011, which is the version I watched, and it is four hours eleven minutes. Yeah, that's that's the one I watched, which is a fair chunk longer than the one you watched. Mm-hmm. And I did wonder what they could have added in because it seems quite complete as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, actually, because you may disagree with me, but I would say. So that's still 18 minutes shorter of what his original cut had been. Yeah. Although various rights issues, apart from anything else, have stopped that being produced. Um, and the various filmmakers like Martin Scorsese have been trying to get that back. Although some of the bits that have been added are actually great quality. So it also yeah. depends on what's just available. But even with that, um, I'm still thinking... Yeah, there are bits missing. <laughs> there are definitely some extraneous bits in this um, extended cut, but I still feel at times there's a missing story beats. Yeah, like there's the scene when it's just bef- it's the night of the rape of Elizabeth McGovern's character, and Noodles turns up and takes her out to dinner. But like, it, and it feels like you've just been dropped in the middle of. When, when was this planned? When have they met again? They seem to have been seeing each other. He's, he didn't just turn up at the theatre that night that he was working at, surely. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a huge chunk missing there. Yeah. And then when James Woods, out of nowhere, reacts really strongly to Noodles calling him crazy, where yeah. did that come from? So there are a few bits like that. If you, it just feels like there's some sort of establishing scene missing there. Um, because I was enjoying it so much, I could have stood to have seen more. Yeah. <laughs> Which... You don't hear from us often. <laughs> but I mean, this film has a story to tell. Um, and it has compelling characters, interesting characters. Not likeable in any way, obviously. They're terrible, terrible people. Yeah. But I think the film doesn't suggest otherwise, really. Well, with one caveat there that sometimes it seems that Ennio Morricone's score is suggesting we should feel sympathy for them. Hmm. Um, and it's maybe my one real complaint with the film is that I didn't enjoy Morricone's score much. There are pieces of it which are as magnificent as they usually are from that composer, mm-hmm. but they're just they're so heavy-handed at times, and there are so many of them. Mm. That, and by the end of four and a half hours, I was thoroughly sick of hearing Cockeye's song, yeah. which is a little piece that's played on the panpipes. Yeah, yeah, stop it. Please, I've been <laughs> hearing that constantly for three hours. Please stop it. Uh, but they're a kind of... So slightly melancholy, kind of quasi-romantic melodies playing at the train station right after Elizabeth McGovern's about to leave town, the, the kind of the day after she's been raped by yeah, the person yeah. who claims to have loved her her whole life. Uh, yeah, I, no, 
I'm not going to feel sorry for this man. He's a terrible, terrible person who's doing terrible things. Yeah. <laughs> and this film had perhaps more impressive for 1984. Even manages to do old age makeup pretty well. Yeah, I did think that when I was watching it. It's like that actually is not far away from De Niro looks <laughs> at the sort of time he would be in this one. Yeah, it's um, quite well done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, James Woods is particularly well done, but you don't see him for a lot as a mm-hmm. um, in his older age. And actually, the guy that plays Mo is particularly convincing. Mm-hmm. To the point where I was honestly questioning whether he was an older actor made <laughs> to look young right. earlier or a younger actor made to look old. I couldn't tell at all. It was so well done. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to go back to the running time thing though, because there are and I'm not sure exactly what's um what differences. I know there's some bits there's one of the pieces added is a scene with Louise Fletcher, um famous for one flew of the cuckoo's nest, at the cemetery. And while he's Robert De Niro's talking to her, there's this car following him, and then he finds out where the car's from, which is outside of Mister Bailey's or Secretary Bailey's house, and then he's there when it blows up. And I think in the cut you saw, Scott, you just see the news story about it. Yes, that right. You just yeah. you see him in a bar watching the thing that the person that was in Secretary Bailey's car died. Mm-hmm. But you see a bit before that, it adds nothing. <laughs> um, but I, th- I don't know if you see that later too. But you find out that was done by Treat Williams' character, Clean Hands, no, Jimmy Clean Hands. Right. Because um, okay. James Woods yeah. is saying, because you actually see him earlier in that cut at the house. Um, and he's explaining, basically, he's expecting him to to bomb the party because he's extorting them and telling them, you've got to sign over everything except we'll leave you 12% for your kid yeah. of all your money. So that kind of extends character a bit, but doesn't so half of it adds something, half of it is pointless. <laughs> but I don't know whether that extra 12 or 17 minutes or whatever is missing um, would actually just finish that off. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there are bits added in there that are some interesting flesh things out of it. But it still, at the same time, still manages to leave some questions. <laughs> when right, the night that the raid on the thing on the um, friends happens, sort of like, is it a raid? Sort of, I guess a police sting. I guess is more what you would call it when. Uh, they're going to do the trade for the cheap booze just before prohibition ends and yeah. your friends die at the start. When you see that again later, Joe Pesci's there. Mm-hmm. But like almost like in a blink you would miss it thing. Right. And I was like, okay, is that suggesting that the mafia are involved in this thing too? See, it's never explicitly stated, but he's from the mafia. Yeah. Him and Polly from Rocky, who forever will be known yes. sadly as Polly from Rocky. <laughs> yes. Um and like, okay, you're suggesting he's involved in that, but then it's like, well, it's never explored again, never mentioned. Ah, oh, I, I, I keep thinking, is there another scene that kind of goes with that? And, I, and because I like it so much, I want more. Yeah. And then I'm thinking, how absolutely butchered must the original US release have been? Yeah, yeah. To the point where it would be incomprehensible. And like, no wonder it bombed in the United States. Yeah. Because the original. European and wider international release was the 229 minute one that you saw. Mm-hmm. The US version is a shade over two hours. Yeah. <laughs> How? How is it possible to take this original 
planned for a six-hour film that was released in Europe in a still shorter than the director wanted version of 229 minutes and then take it to like 130 odd in the US and ha- expect anybody to have any idea what was happening. Yeah. It's baffling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it must have been just no wonder that bomb because it must have been absolutely mutilated. Yeah, I, I do kind of want to watch that cut out of morbid curiosity, but it, yeah. it can't be any good, you know. Yeah, I, it must be a car crash of a film. Yeah. <laughs> they had that much cut out of it. Yeah, again, it's another thoroughly rewarding film. Not a, I mean, not a conventionally enjoyable watch. Not in the way that some films are just like really bad subject matter. It's just like these are villains, and they're not. Yeah, yeah. You're not rooting for anybody. And uh, again, for the most part, yeah, it's still one of my favourite films. I'm so worried about going back to this. Yeah. So <laughs> so worried. I think the only other thing I have about it is that that. That revelation at the end is A, as you mentioned, Scott. Well, you said silly. I'll use the word stupid because it's stupid. Yeah. And it makes no sense. And it also relies entirely on Robert De Niro's character never having looked at the television or a newspaper in like 20 years. Because yeah. I'm guessing people who get to the part of the United States government where they have the title secretary will probably have been in the news a bit. Yes, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> um, there aren't that many roles that carry that title. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, and also the fact that I can even remember the first time I watched this, more or less guessing that that was going to be the case at the start of the film. So, <laughs> uh, otherwise, it's just a thoroughly working film, and just like seriously, only he was good at the old filmmaking. <laughs> yes, just a bit, you know. Yes, I, I will just be repeating myself constantly if I carry on anymore. I like this film a lot. You should watch it. Yes, I concur. So, um, for our next film, we're travelling across country, well, across the ocean, to China, with Once Upon a Time in China. Drew? Yes, Once Upon a Time in China, or, geez, oh, martial artist furniture bills must be eye-watering, <laughs> is the first of a six-film series based on the not-at-all-enhanced and augmented stories of 19th-century Cantonese folk hero Wong Fei-Hung, Jet Li which I believe roughly translates as Chinese fighting Jesus. Yes. Wong is the head of the local militia in Foshan at some point during the Qing dynasty, and as well as being a legendary martial arts instructor, is also a pharmacist. You know, that classic combination. (laughs) The film begins with a lion dance aboard a ship, during which French soldiers aboard a nearby boat mistake firecrackers for gunfire, and begin shooting at the Chinese. One of the lion dancers is injured, perhaps killed, but this is apparently inconsequential, as for some reason completing the dance is more important. <laughs> and indeed, the injured man is not seen again, or spoken of. Yeah, and Jet Li, a guest on board at the time, is the man to ensure the dance is, is completed. Not the man to check the victim is okay, though. You know, despite his training in Chinese medicine and whatnot. <laughs> Sucks to be that guy, I guess. <laughs> the high hygiene... Note for foreigners, despite the sound, that's not Chinese, but Scots, meaning boss, aboard the boat gives Wong a fan on which are written the unequal treaties China has signed with foreign powers and tries to give the object some sort of importance it clearly does not merit and Wong an ill-defined instruction to something or maybe something else. Look, plot is not this film's strong point. (laughs) There's a triad gang involved in labour and sex slavery shipping Chinese to the USA who develop a beef with Wong and the wandering martial arts master who develops a beef with Wong and corrupt Westerners who develop... Look, I think you get the point. And all of these beefs 
So beefs? It's a beef festival. <laughs> All of these beefs stroke beefs. It should be beefs. Why is it not beefs? <laughs> I guess because beefs are plural on its own, isn't it? Anyway, <laughs> enough of grammar side um, tracks. Must be settled by kick fighting. It had been a long, long time since I'd seen Once Upon a Time in China, and I had either forgotten, or, more likely, never realised before, what absolute garbage it is. <laughs> At times entertaining garbage, to be sure, but garbage nonetheless, with a lot of unclear and largely, if not wholly unimportant and poorly explained scenes taking place simply to link the far too greatly spaced fight scenes together. And it wastes no time in being confusing, dumb or inconsequential. With the French soldiers in the opening scene realising their mistake within about a minute, ceasing fire and going back to whatever they were idly doing before, with no apparent consequence, especially since Master Wong took care of the really important thing, finishing the line dance. Hmm. While many Western films have been criticised, and rightly, for inaccurate and anachronistic depictions of other cultures, that very much goes both ways. While I can't speak to the veracity of the Chinese dress and buildings, I know that British soldiers in the mid to late 19th century were unlikely to look like Beaugesse with a palette swap, and dressing the Americans to look like they could have been palling around with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington was an odd choice, to be sure. <laughs> Early on in the film, Jet Li seems inordinately miffed at the official's fan being burned, as if it somehow is anything more than the equivalent of the napkin he wrote some notes on. The fan and the official are, however, never spoken of or seen again, so maybe they didn't really matter. And then there's the needlessly belligerent Master Yim, who exists in the story simply to give Master Wong someone to fight at the end. Of course, the point of a film like this is the fight scenes, and it was certainly pretty popular, being credited with much of the impetus for the popularity of Wushu and other martial arts films in the 90s. Some of the fights are entertaining and well choreographed, it's hard for me to care about anything when almost everyone who isn't Jet Li is either a pantomime-level villain or a buffoon. Indeed, any scene not featuring Jet Li, and there are far too many of those, is barely worth watching. And barely watchable. Especially the slapstick comedy. Hmm. Once Upon a Time in China is a reasonably entertaining, if confusing, martial arts film, but it pales in comparison to the far superior and far more entertaining Fong Sayuk series, so watch those instead. Hmm. Yeah, just, for a while I've thought about trying to get a Wuxia episode together, but what are you going to say about almost all these films apart from I like the fighting? <laughs> uh, I mean, look, we, I, I still really enjoyed watching Once Upon a Time in China. I've not seen it in years. I still quite enjoyed it this time round. Um, it's Jet Li's just a tremendous artist in, in the way he can punch yes. people. Um, and that is really really enjoyable uh, the rest of it yeah it isn't great i mean uh, it doesn't it didn't bother me as a genre fan but now we get back into the whole genre cinema discussions because we, we throughout all the time we've spoken about films have given horror films a hard time mainly for being rubbish in the way that i think a fan of the horror genre would not do it because they can accept the various tropes uh, and the conveniences and shortcuts that it takes as part of it being in that genre. And if I'm going to be entirely fair, we should apply exactly the same logic to this film, in which case it is pretty bad. Um, <laughs> all of the, the ADR works awful. Uh, it is hugely confusing. As you say, that character only ex- is parachuted in halfway through the film, more than halfway through the film, I think, um, purely to give Jet Li someone to fight because they've already beaten up the previous main villain, what, three times by that point, and no yeah. longer is a serious threat. 
it's confusingly structured. Um, you know, I, I might give the fans some sort of pass as being symbolic of Chinese national pride or something, but it's not really setting any of that up. It is just the fan. The, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot you could really pick apart uh, in this film that makes it not a good film in any kind of traditional sense. And if you don't have an appreciation or um, a, a kind of pre-existing respect for that uh, wuxia genre stuff then you might not get as much out of this certainly you wouldn't get anything like as much out of this as you would coming to as like coming to the, the, this kind of genre from an outsider as some of the more recent stuff like um well crouching tiger uh, crouching tiger hidden crouching dragon crouching hidden tiger, tiger, hidden tiger. Uh, yes or um house of the flying daggers or something like that uh which combines much the same, perhaps not quite as good, not as inventive martial arts, but some really stunningly captured martial arts, and also has you know tremendous story. visuals and the story and it makes yeah, sense and all these kind of things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's perhaps better as a starting point for those, and if you did like what you see, then you can go back and explore some of these uh, classics like the Feng Shui series, as you see, or um, Chinese Ghost Story, or some of the other ones. The, the Iron existed. Monkey, exactly. Um, Iron Monkey's amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I love all these martial arts films, um, but I if I'm being brutally fair, we do have to recognise the weaknesses that they have, and perhaps that's uh, you could argue they're perhaps a bit more prevalent in Once Upon a Time in China than certainly my memory of uh, some of these other films are. Regardless, I still loved it. Um, but yeah, perhaps I shouldn't <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, I, I couldn't get over the other stuff, um, mm-hmm. and because I, I, I do apply this, I don't buy into genre cinema as an excuse for just bad stuff yeah um, but it's for me it's more frustrating than anything else because i want to enjoy the the fight scenes yeah uh, i just i don't find any of the fight scenes in this film enormously memorable whereas i can close my eyes and picture it's not even so much a fight scene but just like amazing scenes in one of the i don't recall what's the first or second fong sayuk but mm. and they're basically balancing on towers of little stills yes, yes. it's just incredible stuff yeah. um, whereas I don't find anything in Once Upon a Time quite so memorable yeah and you mentioned the ADR I think that's you just watched the, one of the dubs it's because it was shot in Cantonese but dubbed into Mandarin I think maybe you saw the Mandarin version, which is what I saw because I couldn't. No, um, all the English actors they've been. Oh yeah, dubbed. they're terrible too. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. that's mainly. I mean, that's obviously the most obvious for me because I can I can tell how that's supposed to sound. And it doesn't sound like that. Um, yeah, the, that ADR's not great. Yeah, uh, no, it's all pretty bad. But I couldn't. Cause I was trying to find. I couldn't even find my original DVD because um, I was hoping it might have had both tracks on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking over because I hate dubs and just the fact that. I was like, I can say, like, okay, that's they're not speaking the same language there. That's this is the Mandarin dub on top of the Cantonese spoken original. Yeah, I would like to see the Cantonese one, please. If I couldn't find it anywhere, then I did source eventually a dub. I thought, oh, right, oh no, wait, this is an English dub. This is <laughs> all sorts of worse. Yes, it's frustrating. That's it's quite common with uh, films, particularly of that period. I think to be even if they were Hong Kong shot. To be, well, I mean, understandable for like the mainland Chinese audience that they would be dubbed in Mandarin. Mm-hmm. But frustratingly, that's quite often the only version you can get here rather than the original language. But given I didn't care about anything that was happening anyway, that yes. ended up being a minor, minor <laughs> fault. Like, uh, I just I hate everything happening. Stop it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I had been looking forward to going back to this, but 
there are just many better examples of the genre. And again, I want to give another shout out to Iron Monkey. And in fact, it would encourage the English dub this time while while clearly being awful. <laughs> it's one of, those, one of those rare ones where the English dub has become so iconic in my mind and it's so enjoyable that I couldn't watch it without it. Yes. <laughs> um, I love that film. <laughs> yeah, so for a real disappointment for me, but I think as it, because the, the main focus of this film and any films like it are the fight scenes... And it is it's like over two hours, this film, isn't it? Yeah. You could easily cut out half an hour of the absolute nonsense happening that doesn't matter to the plot anyway. And anything to do with Wing, Porky Wing, mm-hmm. because, oh, it's funny, he's fat and he, make, he falls through things and stuff. Ha ha. It's like, no, I, just, I hate this stupid slapstick comedy. It's not funny. <laughs> you could cut that out and then shorten the distance between the fights and it'd be a much better film. Tighten up a bit, just, just have more of the fighting. Yeah. Although one of the very first lines you see in the film is Porky Wing uh, offering people pork buns and I just spent much of the next half hour wishing I was playing Sleeping Dogs instead (laughs) anyway, yes, uh, yet another weird aside from me, but we're going to move on a bit from there to well, all of these other films so far have been the first film in a series or not part of a series at all, whereas yeah into not first, not just the first sequel, but the second sequel uh, in a series that I'm going to give away my feelings a bit. Definitely suffering from diminishing returns. <laughs> and Robert Rodriguez's Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Scott. Yes, as you say, the third of his Mexican bullet ballet sees, well, to be honest, a lot of things happening at once with very loose relations to each other. <laughs> More which later, but again, this means it doesn't quite lend itself to neat, succinct recaps, but try this on for size. Antonio Banderas's Mariachi just wants to live a quiet life after the death of Salva Hayek's Carolina at the hands of Gerardo Vigil's evil General Marquez, but he's been drafted in by Johnny Depp's CIA goon Sheldon Jeffrey Sands as a hired gun. Marquez himself has been hired by Mexican drug baron Armando Barrio, played pointlessly by noted non-Latino Willem Dafoe, to take out the president. As the CIA only approves of regime change when they're the ones pulling the strings, Sands wants an oar stuck in that, hence leveraging El Mariachi's past and also drafting in Ruben Blades' retired FBI agent Jorge Ramirez, who has his own reasons for wanting Brio dead. And so it goes, with a whole bunch of plot twists and supporting characters played by the likes of Mickey Rourke, Eva Mendez and Danny Trejo. Now, I didn't have particularly fond memories of In Mexico, at least insofar as I had any memories of it at all. Um, However, for the first half of the film, I thought perhaps I'd been mistaken. It had been a while since I last watched a Robert Rodriguez film, and his blend of action and visuals are still a quite enjoyable thing to watch. However, the second half of the film just falls entirely off the rails. Uh, I suppose the essential reason why we're watching it, the action, remains fine, uh, and it continues apace, but why any of this is happening is soon lost in a mess of setups, double crosses, revelations and betrayals and the like, mostly happening to characters that you've barely met and therefore aren't all that bothered about. Exactly, thank you. (laughs) Now, these convolutions are apparently by design, but all that goes to show is that achieving a goal and a goal being worth achieving are not necessarily the same thing. 
Through all of this, Johnny Depp floats around alternately instigating or explaining things to no great effect, occasionally arbitrarily killing people for no reason, and generally just consuming screen time that ought to have been going to Antonio Banderas' character, who is, after all, the only one that we have any emotional investment in. But he feels like... An, he's barely in it. He's, he's a bit part character in his own movie. It's really weird. Yeah, so in many ways, this just seems like a budget in search of a story. Uh, mm. The, the shoestring-esque amount that El Mariachi was made for proved to be a mother invention, and the relatively colossal amount, albeit still modest in the grander scheme of Hollywood budgets given to Desperado, allowed for a similar tale to be told with much more style and assurance. With the relatively super colossal mountain of cash that was secured for Mexico, I rather wonder if there was a plan for that money other than more. More <laughs> characters, more stunts, more plot lines, more big name, big price tag actors, but what there isn't really is much of a reason to care about anything that's been thrown at you, and this winds up being very much less than the sum of its parts. Now, for all that, I'd still don't actually dislike Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and there's a number of entertaining scenes in there amongst all the success. The problem is, why should I tell you, dear listener, to go and watch this and not El Mariachi or Desperado instead, which are just much better films all round? Mm-hmm. If you want to complete that set, however, I wouldn't necessarily warn you away from it, but it's not in the same league as the earlier outings. And indeed, I wrote most of these notes before re-watching the earlier pair, and I suspect I'd be rather less forgiving towards El Mexico if I'd watched them in order. Uh, but, so, yes, it's... a disappointment, as you very much say, very much diminishing to returns by the time you get to this point in the series, and uh, yes, um, a bit of a, a downer to kind of dribble that uh, little mini-series out on. Yes, well, I watched these in order. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Mexico's hot garbage. <laughs> it's appalling. I, I did not like a single thing about this film. And from things like, well, Danny Trejo was in Desperado, right? Yeah. Mm. And he died in Desperado, right? Yeah. And Danny Trejo, he's not in any way a distinctive looking person. Nobody will remember him. Let's put him back in the film as a different character. No! Yeah. And the thing... There's some precedent for that. I mean, they did have to retrofit Antonio Banderas into the the role as Mariachi as well. So. With Carlos Gallardo, because um, I think Carlos Gallardo didn't speak English more than anything, was why he wasn't in Desperado as the main character. But I don't know, it's, it's strange to do that, but... Mm. That's that's definitely it's very much the least of its problems. <laughs> <laughs> problems. It's definitely got a bit of stunt casting going on. Yes. Are you putting old Henry Churches in Enrique Iglesias? Also, while not that he speaks much Spanish in this, but while Antonio Banderas is disguising his Spanish accent, mm. Enrique Iglesias isn't. Yes. So he's not selling himself as a Mexican at all. It's yeah. I just found the kind of like, both the Johnny Depp and the script are trying way, way too hard to be kooky and quirky. Yeah, and it does not work. It's like, it's like oh, here's my thing. I, I order this puerco pibil everywhere, and then I'll go and kill the chef. Ha <laughs> ha. Nah, it's not good. As I mentioned, the stunt cast, and you mentioned too. I'm glad you did, Scott. About like being asked to care about people or characters or situations when they've not been in it at all. Yeah. Willem Dafoe, who for some reason is a villain, despite also, while being American, also barely in the film, really. Yeah. Mickey Rourke has his barely in the film enforcer. Fortunately, Robert Rodriguez made much better use of Mickey Rourke in the Sin City films, mm-hmm. proving that while he, he can do films that are largely style over substance, but make them really good at the same time, Sin City films are very enjoyable. Yeah. And then there's a scene, it's one that struck me in particular, when Eva Mendes 
appears and says, Hey, you, you didn't see this coming, did you? I'm like, Oh, no, no, obviously I didn't see this coming. How could you see this coming? You've been in the film for 37 seconds up to this point. I don't know who you are. <laughs> That's like, there's one scene where she's like working for some sort of um, agency mm-hmm. and she doesn't get the job she wants. And then you see her speak to. Um, Joy Devlin says, go and do this, get some money. I okay, then suddenly she's double-crossing him and she's Willem Dafoe's daughter. And, what? <laughs> You're not a character. You can't suddenly have this revelation. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... I, I don't know. It's, and I didn't even like the action all that much. It just seemed... I, I don't know. It's, I think I was put off partly by the fact there were some really dodgy um, effects in there. Like the quality of some sort of plug-in for After Effects <laughs> kind of quality is in there, like but like a not a, not an expensive plug-in for After Effects. <laughs> like there's a scene on the, I guess it's meant to be some sort of government building. It's the actually the university in Guanajuato, the building with the really steep steps, the kind of pale grey building. Yeah, and there's like at one point a tank comes along and fires a shell at that, and it looks like real fire behind on the close-up shot. It cuts away to the wide shot, and it's the worst digital fire I have seen in a long, long time. And there were a few shots like that, like wee bullet pings off of like buildings behind Johnny Depp that probably, not so much After Effects plug-in, more like really early days of the iPhone effects. <laughs> you can get wee apps that could do things like that. I don't think it's a competently made film. It's certainly not a competently written film. The biggest problem is, though, that the mariachi is sidelined in the third film in the mariachi trilogy that's ostensibly yeah. about the mariachi. It's very, very strange. Yes. And, yeah, a, a large portion of the film is shot in a very beautiful Mexican city called Guanajuato. And because I've been there, I spent a good chunk of the time just seeing if I could recognise places <laughs> and streets and things because I was not being captivated by the action at all. It's... I just thought this whole film was hot garbage. Further, I might have been somewhat more forgiving if I hadn't watched it right after the original two films. I don't know, like uh, you think is the case for you. you yeah, but, that way, but. yes, but who's going to do that? Um, yes. th- this was just the, the way it worked out for me. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mm, yeah, it's just not the same quality as the other two. Yeah, it does. I see what you mean. It's like, yeah, we've got this extra money now. I don't know what to do with this. Let's try and do everything and achieve nothing. This seems to be what's happened. It's quite famous, actually, that El Mariachi was made on a basically a shoestring budget. Yeah. Not as low as some, but a very low budget. And it's probably the best of the three films. Yeah. Uh, I could could maybe argue the toss between that and Desperado, but he was much more limited at that point. But also, you thought, well, Rodriguez is his... Like beginnings of filmmaker kind of show through in that film. He's got quite a few films under his belt now. Uh, and then you've got people who you would imagine you could depend on, like Johnny Depp, you know, and it's like, nope, it's just, it's terrible all the way down. Yeah, it's just a mess. Just yeah, a mess. It's yeah. a bad, bad film. Well, fair enough. Shall we move on to something that we hope is a bit more competent? I mean, it's one I can, it one it can, so what, surely Once Upon a Time in Anatolia must be much better. Your tone suggests you don't think so, but I do, so I mm-hmm. guess that's at least one of us. Nuri Belgesilans, and my apologies for any Turkish speakers on that terrible, I'm sure, pronunciation. I have no idea how to pronounce Turkish for the most part. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, Bir Zamanlar 
Anno de Luda, begins inspiciously enough with three men sitting in the office of a tire shop, drinking, eating and laughing, though an ominous roll of thunder attracts the attention of one of them. We then move to a roadside fountain as night falls, small and inconsequential amongst the vast openness of the Anatolian plateau. Three cars come to view from the distance and stop near the fountain. Numerous men spill out, including two who have their hands bound. The situation, and perhaps the title, suggests that something very bad may be about to happen to those men, and that they are about to become part of the landscape. It's almost the opposite, in fact, as if something bad has already happened, and those accompanying the bound men are police officers and prosecutors, and the men themselves there to show them where a body is buried. Well, if only they could remember just which fountain, by which road, by which tree they buried it. The group travels through the wet and windy Anatolian night, moving from one potential burial spot to the next, and we begin to learn a little about the personalities and lives of those in the party, principally in the lead car. The pensive young city doctor, Semal, Muhammad Uzuner, ill-tempered police chief Nasi, Yilmaz Erdogan, food-loving Arab Ali, Ahmet Mumtaz Taylan, again apologies, as well as later Tanir Birsil's prosecutor Nusret. In the backseat of that first car though, one face is shrouded in darkness while the others are lit. When he leans forward we can recognise him as one of the men from the tyre shop and can surmise that things did not go well for one of those three we saw at the, at the beginning. This man, Kanan, Firat Tanis is the group's main focus as he leads them from one potential gravesite to another, always claiming that he can't remember, whether due to the fact it's night time or that he was drunk at the time. A tired and frustrated group, and an increasingly irate Chief Nasi, call upon the mayor of a small village for refreshments, where an unexpected encounter has a profound effect on many of the party, and the film changes gear, leading to Keenan divulging the location of the grave the body's recovery and its subsequent autopsy, where a further discovery is made. In this portion of the film, Dr. Samal comes to the fore and he must make a decision about whether total honesty is to be desired in all matters. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia has no great drama and no great action. Instead, we travel with some people and learn about them as they do an unpleasant job discovering things as they do, including some sad truths brought to light by the questioning of an anecdote that was originally meant to illustrate something along the lines of, well, it's a funny old world, isn't it? The final act is more focused, and the main characters become only the doctor and prosecutor. The truth behind that anecdote is discovered, and during the autopsy, the rather melancholy doctor must decide in which way best to interpret first do no harm. Throughout, the characters and story are given time to breathe and expand as the film meanders through the countryside, and we can develop empathy for those unremarkable but profoundly real and human characters. Even Kenan, whose gaunt and haunted visage perforates the film, a hugely memorable performance from Firat Tanis, despite having no more than a handful of lines. If there's a complaint, it's the all-too-common one of being almost exclusively male, and from the male perspective. Though this is tempered as a criticism of the film, though not the situation, as likely being very representative of the society from which this film comes. Apart from two ill-defined women in a farm building at night, and perhaps a handful in the crowd in town, this film is populated by men, with two notable exceptions. One is the widow of the murder victim, the other the daughter of the village mayor whose house the search party visit. Sadly, that young woman herself is not much more than a MacGuffin, 
But the sight of her striking and youthful beauty, so unexpected in that place and during their search for a corpse, seems to have a profound effect on many of the men. Undoubtedly, desire is one aspect, but it may not be, and probably is not, the principal one. Canaan seems particularly affected by her, and it's not long after the encounter that he finally gives up, without further prevarication, the certain location of the grave. The prosecutor, and especially the doctor, are particularly affected by her too, and the feelings of waste, lost youth, unhappiness, regret and loneliness are almost palpable. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia is an at times mesmerising film, beautiful and complex, with even the landscape itself both informing the characters and acting as one. What seems at first to be a police procedural becomes a character study of Turkish manhood, with some political points for flavour. Where it has the potential to frustrate is in never adequately explaining what happened or why. We get snippets and can make conjectures, but all um, is left ambiguous. Beyond that, though, it's great. So then, Scott, tell me why I'm wrong. Right, I really enjoyed the first hour or so of Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. I think it's it's quite mesmerising at the start of it, all the, the driving through the desert, the night landscape, the way it's lit and the way it's shot. It's really quite beautiful in a sort of desolate kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I was really getting quite involved in you know, what, what exactly is unfolding here, what's the story, what's going on, yeah, 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 and all that stuff. But um, then it, it just kind of never really developed into anything for me and I've kind of lost the thread, I think. I lost the thread pretty much entirely at that point that you thought was so captivating, I think, from what you're saying there when they, 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 they have the, the encounter with the, the one beautiful girl that seems to change their perspective. It's like, why? It's a girl. What's the deal with that? And um, I, I think what perhaps got me more is the point where I realised that the actual narrative here isn't going to be developing into anything of the what I was more interested in, but it's instead going to focus on the interplay between the doctor and the prosecutor. And I just didn't really care enough about either character to get particularly invested in either. I didn't I didn't dislike it. Um, I was just, I think perhaps I'd, I'd built this up because I'd, this has kind of been on my list of things to catch up with since, what, 2011? When it yeah, it was sort of on a malice of, of similar yeah. things too. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been in a way, looking forward to it for quite some time and having finally, you know, carved out time and inclination to watch it. And it's just all right. Um, I wasn't uh, particularly affected by it. It didn't engage me on any level. I suspect if I'd watched it again, if I'd sought a different mood, then perhaps I would have got a little more from it. I I kind of swung back and forward thinking about whether I would have got much more out of this had I saw it in a cinema setting as opposed to being at home. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the kind of scale of it, certainly at the start, might um, help uh, draw it in. But... I don't know, you could make the same argument about many of the other films we've spoken about today, particularly the first two Leone films, and um, I still love them, <laughs> despite having watched them at home. So, yeah, not sure. Um, it's it's perfectly fine, but I just can't find... It didn't move me in any way, so I can't really see where... I've read a few reviews about how they're moved by the characters and, and these things, and they just never connected with me on any level more than appreciating that there's a number of pretty good performances and obviously there's a lot of uh, naturalistic stuff happening there. The characters are you know, believable and, and real, but they're not interesting. Uh, I just didn't really feel any empathy for them because I didn't really get so great a handle on what they're going through. Some, some really... Uh, great performances, particularly by the uh, prosecutor, I thought, mm-hmm. uh, really um, 
really nailed the character, but it's just not a character that I cared about in the end of the final analysis. Yeah, it, it just didn't grab me, which is a bit of a shame. Um, and I don't have an awful lot of complaints with the technical levels of it. It's very well handled and shot, but just at the end of the day, the stories, the characters just didn't add up to anything to me and uh, was a bit of a I wouldn't say as I say I, I enjoyed it well enough I, I wouldn't want to put anyone off it it's not like I thought this film was terrible it's, despite what I implied earlier it's, it's leagues ahead of Once Upon a Time in Mexico um, but uh, yeah I, I was just a little bit disappointed it just didn't do much for me which is a bit of a shame yeah I, I didn't find any of the characters particularly interesting at least in a typical film drama sort of way mm-hmm. um perversely i kind of think that's why i liked it though yeah <laughs> um because it wasn't like they were non-entities or anything like that it's, they just felt very real to me mm-hmm. um and there was a lot of just said just by facial expressions and stares and i just find i found that quite compelling a lot said but what were they saying <laughs> I, I just didn't get a message from any of it um. Um, For me it was There was sort of I mean you could perhaps call it self-pity But sort of bemoaning their lot But the way I Interpreted it was that It seems a bit silly to say this about Anatolia Given that Anatolia is the majority of Turkey mm-hmm. But uh, I think The idea is more that it's In like the interior of Turkey Like that, the the steps The fairly small villages the and just the fairly barren looking grasslands about it kind of actually to me had a similar feel to how Patagonia tends to be represented in film I have the feeling it's a similar sort of lifestyle there similar sort of mm. feeling and I've liked a lot of films set in Patagonia actually uh, as maybe something to do with the that kind of desolate nature that you mentioned yourself to um, at least in terms of aesthetics, you liked how it looked. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the end, there's a particular fairly hard type of life in there. It, it produces a set of type of people. There's kind of like a a dead end nature to life in that place. And that that's perhaps what the characters are experiencing. And that there's, they don't really see a way out for themselves or, or plus with a wee bit of the and kind of old ways of life passing away, which is what that village represents. Um, and other than that, I just, I, I just like that the characters were just kind of... They felt really real in a lot of ways. And there's a scene, well, a couple of scenes to where... One, well, that's both in the same section, but once they've exhumed the body and they're preparing to move it to the hospital for their autopsy, and they've forgotten the body bag. And it's it could quite easily become farce, that section. It was. Well, see, I they they see showed themselves that. up as a bunch of clueless morons. See, I didn't <laughs> see like that. I, I saw it more as just like, um, yes, it's incompetence, but more because they're just not accustomed to doing this sort of thing and they're just, it was just basic incompetence rather than farce. Uh I could see that you might see that splitting hairs, but for me it felt quite distinct. But another, just in a few just sort of human scenes I really enjoyed, like when um, they start getting onto the spit where the corpse looked like Clark Gable. 
he didn't. And the prosecutor looked like Carter Gable. He didn't, but they thought they did, so that's fine. Um, and then so he gives a wee anecdote and they start laughing and stuff. They kind of catch himself, realise he's where he is. And I'm like, yeah, that felt like, you know, in that situation, if that real, that's exactly what would happen. It's like maybe slightly inappropriate, but they're doing a job that needs to be done. They're tired, but also some of them will have been through these motions before. And you, so that's the kind of thing that happens. And I, I don't know, I just enjoyed the humanity of that scene. I can't really explain it any more than that. And I just got a lot out of this film. I just found it really interesting. I did really like the five-minute discussion about yogurt. That was a particular <laughs> high point. I thought I learned a lot from that, yeah. mainly about yogurt. Ambi- all that, all those conversations in the car. I, I just really enjoyed. They're not really meaningful, but also it's exactly the sort of thing people would talk about in a car while they were travelling to a place that wasn't particularly exciting for them to get to. Again, I, I don't disagree that any of it is showing realistic characters, but I know realistic characters in real life and they're boring, and so's <laughs> a lot of this film. Well, I can't actually argue with that, <laughs> except that I didn't find them boring. I found them... <laughs> int- well, I'm not sure interesting is quite the right word, but um, certainly engaging enough to want to see what's happening, to listen to them with interest. So I guess that would be interesting. Yeah, I'll stick to that and make things more straightforward. Um, yeah, so it seems I clearly got a great deal more out of that than you did. Sadly, yes. Um, I, I really was hoping for more, but I, I didn't get it, so silly. Okay then, so we'll move on from that to sort of the reason we're doing this now, although actually it was a combination, I think, of this film and... Uh, for our last episode, I had wanted to talk about Once Upon a Time in the West because it had had a cinematic re-release for its 70th anniversary of being in British cinemas. Um, and that's the new joint from Mr Tarantino, Scott. Yes, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which drops us into, well, Hollywood. In 1969, as Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton worries that he's coming to the end of his career, hopping through TV series as special guests rather than the lead roles. This will have implications for his friend, Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth, his body double stuntman, driver and general gopher. Still, Rick has been offered some lead parts in spaghetti westerns, although he thinks that's another sign of decline, but he still has his house in the hills. Indeed, he might even get a part by talking to his new neighbours, Rowan Polanski and his wife, Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate. Now, for two hours, we're mainly following the ups and downs of Rick and Cliff's life and careers, both present and in flashbacks, and to a lesser degree, Sharon Tate's, along with her relationship with Polanski and her old flame, Emily Hirsch's Jay Sebring. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, the Manson family are gearing up to do what they did, although in this alternate version, in particular their run-ins with Cliff and his awesome dog Brandy, things will be different for some reason. Uh, The questions rattling around in my empty old head since watching this a few days ago have mainly reduced to what exactly was the point of all this and what exactly was Tarantino trying to say and about what. The answers I've settled on are that, well, he had no point and he isn't saying a damn thing about anything, which is pretty much in line with Tarantino's career so far. And that's fine. Not everything must pass explicit commentary on the world, but this feels like the first time he's trying to reach for some greater point, particularly with his inclusion of approximate historical events and characters, but he's really failing to get anything across. 
You could argue Inglorious Bastards was a toe in the water of alternate histories, but I don't think that stands up to a great deal of scrutiny. That was a fairly straightforward Tarantino take on the Dirty Dozen war film formula. This is weird. (laughs) Why invoke real-world tragedy to produce a weird revenge-come-home-invasion fantasy, particularly when that only really happens in the final, what, quarter of the film, which has been entirely different in tone and feel up until that point? Now, there's many strange lesser deviations from reality. I entirely understand why Bruce Lee's estate are not particularly happy about this. But in the main, I just don't understand why bother doing any of it this way. It might have been different had there been this been a character study of Tate or there'd been even some kind of faint attempt to justify it on that basis, but she's barely a character in the film. The sum total of knowledge you'll get from Tate that you'll get from this film is that she seems nice. <laughs> As perhaps you'd expect from Tarantino, this is exploitation, not exploration. Now, I really liked all of the non-Manson stuff in here. DiCaprio and Pitt are great, Robbie's likeable, even when she's not doing much, and it's as stylish and sharp as Tarantino always is. I'm assuming this isn't your first time to the Tarantino show, and so if you like his other work, you'll like this aspect at least, and if you don't, I don't think there's anything here that will change your mind. Um, But the Manson stuff, I don't know, it, it just made me uncomfortable. Not because it was exploring their dark nature to get some understanding of them, but because they're repurposing a horrible chapter of history into some ultimately entirely pointless light entertainment, and as a shorthand to avoid having Tarantino write a real villain. It's just lazy. I felt embarrassed for him. So that stuff really isn't great and that leads into the usual hyper-violent finale that here feels like it's been cut in from an entirely different film. It's jarring and I suspect not in the way that Tarantino wants. Again, achieving a goal and that goal being worth achieving, not necessarily the same thing. The way the final stretch delights in its violence towards women is also a little bit off-putting. I mean, in the overall arc of Tarantino's treatment of all of his characters, regardless of gender, it's perhaps not so out of the ordinary, but... In a film with otherwise precious little of it, it sticks out like a charred corpse or an unrecognisably mashed skull. Even with all that said, I suppose I liked it well enough to recommend it without all that much hesitation. (laughs) Unlike me saying that word. And I'm just glad he's being allowed to make films very much in his style in an increasingly homogenous big-budget cinema landscape. But it's just weird. (laughs) It's a weird, (laughs) weird film. Say... I liked it. If you'd cut it about the two and a half, maybe, hour mark, I'd have walked out of the corner going, this was really good. It was almost as good as Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or the other guys, which are kind of plow a similar Hollywood-focused um, storylines. Uh, this one, it's just weird. I don't I don't know what, what it thinks it does to deserve the ending that it's written, and it just feels a bit strange to me. Yeah, um, I don't think I could argue with you or make any counterpoint to any particular point you've made except like, I just really really liked it especially the ending <laughs> um, maybe that says a lot about me I don't know but in the same way that the ending of Django Unchained left me cackling like a maniac from good I was so entertained and amused by the violence exactly the same thing happened here it is it's weird that all the posters proclaiming this Tarantino's ninth feature and I'm thinking well, that's quite weird then um because to greater or less degree, the entire one-third of his cinematic output has been weird alternate history revenge fantasies. That's a bit strange. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have the same question you have, Scott, of is why? Hmm. And I, mean, I didn't feel uncomfortable with this film at any point. You mentioned 
like violence against women at the end. I honestly didn't think of it as violence against women. I just considered it as violence against bad people. I think if you compare it to the treatment of the the man that's there, where it is, you know, the, the dog goes for his balls basically, but you don't really see. And there's no graphic violence towards him. Um, it's not like it's at that scene in Antichrist or anything like that. There's really, it's very tame. And compare that to the way it delights in showing you that girl's face getting staved in against the fireplace and it just felt it made me feel a bit dirty to be honest so that i didn't have that thought at all they wanted to chew on like the dog Mm. Uh, but yeah unlike django unchained it leaves the the violence right to the end um, for the most part yeah i don't know i just really enjoyed it i am if there's a question i have it is the why why set it in, in this real place with real people? Yeah, or do exactly the same film, but don't put Sharon Tate's character in it. Or Sharon yeah, Tate is, it. Because, because what is the point of that? The, the, I can't think of a point of that other than it's a, it's a tale of things that could go on in Hollywood and there's something else to latch on to. And that's why you can use the guy playing Steve McQueen and these other kind of characters. But it, you don't need it. If, you, if you're already inventing the actor who's your main focus of it, then just run with that. Yeah, I actually kept expecting Leonardo DiCaprio to be a stronger analogue for somebody in particular, and I don't think he was. No. I think he was just a fairly generic TV actor guy. Yes. Because uh, when they start talking about the spaghetti western stuff, uh, Tarantino's well known as a, an avowed fan of Leone. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, oh, is it kind of. He's done like western series, is he? Is this guy going to sort of be Clint Eastwood? Um, but no, it's just he's just an entirely different person. It's like it's strange that he's the fake bit, yes, rather than some sort of analog or even like an amalgam of a bunch of people. It doesn't seem to be. Which annoys me. It annoys me because I really liked his character. I liked everything he was doing, and um, also Brad Pitt's character. All that stuff. There's a lot of fun, and the, yeah, the whole yeah. first two hours I really, really enjoyed. And I just the last hour put me off it. I still say it's that that still means that it wins. But it's not like I hated the last hour. I just find it very, very weird. And I, as I say, maybe I'm maybe what I've done wrong is try to expect something more from Tarantino at this point. He's proven time and time again that he's he's someone who has watched a lot of films, knows what he likes, and puts a nice spin in it and puts them together in sort of really interesting ways on screen. But if you want anything deeper than that surface, you are not getting it from Tarantino. And that's what he's done here again, which is fine. It's fine. But I can say it just seems like the one time where he he was reaching for something else and I just don't know what he was grasping at and I don't think he got it. No, I found the whole thing pretty consistently enjoyable. Um, And including the end, I I was... I was laughing a lot at that scene, just like I was in Django Unchained. But, oh yeah, first of all, go back to the whole, the why thing too. So, yeah, the, the overriding question, if there's one, is like, why Sharon Tate? And then say like, she, well, she was in a few recently successful films. Certainly in this, she's portrayed as you know, just a nice person. Not, not exceptionally nice, but you know, just a, a nice person who had a tremendous crime um, happened to her, and that it's actually really sad that that what Sharon Tate's remembered for, and pretty much the only thing she's remembered for, is that she was murdered. Yeah, and it'd be nice to think that actually, no, if things had gone differently, that's not why she'd be remembered. But I don't know why Quentin Tarantino's the person making that film. Yeah, no, if it was Roman Polanski, 
I'd understand it. Yeah. If it was someone who knew her, like a personal stake in her, or like something. But I don't think, I'm certainly not aware of any link between her and Tarantino. So why her? Why that story? Yeah, if you're going to tell that story, why don't you tell that story? Because you've not told that story in this film as yeah. well. It's it's Because she, she's she, barely in it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's weird. But the rest of it I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, there's a whole section, it must be a good 30 minutes, where they just largely show Leonardo DiCaprio preparing for, then shooting the pilot of a television programme. Which is absolutely uh, excellent. I really yes, love that bit. I love that scene. Yeah. And that, that kid is so good. Mm-hmm. That kid's amazing. And then, I mean, even Timothy Oliphant's tolerable <laughs> in that. And because it, it has so many real people, because that scene had Sam Peckinpah in it, and like there's so many other real people to... But Leonardo DiCaprio's not a real person. That's so strange. Why? <laughs> um, and yeah, f- I don't know why. Cause I don't actually know anything about what Bruce Lee is like as a person. Never cared to. I just liked his films. Mm. Why he was being portrayed as such a blowhard jackass in this film, I've no idea. However, mm. Brad Pitt just threw him into the car with great force, which I also cackled at. <laughs> I found that incredibly funny. But I still don't know why it's there. Yeah. I just, I really liked it. I, I don't have a 100% hit rate for Tarantino stuff, but I tend to tend to enjoy his stuff. I am left slightly mystified, and not for the first time, though, by. Not not to do with Tarantino, but just the whole general fawning over something, like all those things. Five star masterpiece. Like, what? Really? This isn't anybody's masterpiece, let alone Tarantino's, but no. it's. I don't understand that sort of that, fawning over it. That seems to just be how things are these days. You're not allowed to have a... You're not allowed to just think something's okay. You either have to love it or absolutely hate it. You, yeah. can, you can't... There's no room for subtlety and nuance in anything these days. Um, it, it doesn't like scan whole, so well on Twitter, so... Yeah, and doesn't work so well for Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever. Yeah. Video games have played with it as well. It's like, if you give something a 7 out of 10, apparently that's a bad score. But that's that's a really good score. Yeah. But no, uh, yeah, so it's got to be like 95% or something or or it's not good. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you're maybe onto something there, maybe why. Um, which is stupid, but yeah. Detroit Awards, like, masterpiece. No, I mean, as I say, I liked a lot of Tarantino's films, but... I liked his previous two a great deal more than this one. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and if you're the sort of person who likes Tarantino films, you'll like this because it's very much a Tarantino film. Yes. Uh, yes. I am certainly not, don't want to put anyone off it unless they've already decided they don't like Tarantino films, which is, uh, as I say, this won't do anything to change your mind. And for all my moaning about it, I did enjoy the film. I, I really did. I, I still want people to do it. I just don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, and it's 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 bugging me. Um, and it's it's a question I've never had at the end of anything else. Cause you, you you never had any kind of questions about what he's doing with Django and Jane or what he's doing with Inglorious Bastards, even if I didn't like Inglorious Bastards so much. Uh, I didn't have these questions at the end of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. What was like? Just why is he trying to do it with this one, and what was his point? And I, just don't think there is one it's, uh, it's annoying me yeah you're right because you look at Django Unchained and it's like it's a revenge fantasy but also you know that's kind of a fun story you can, you can understand the why of that too it's like well a, um, a slave gets revenge mm. yep that's that's pretty watchable and then The Hateful Eight like, that's just a story mm-hmm. 
and that's fine. But yeah, why this one? Why this woman this time? It's strange. I I, don't, I can only think perhaps that it's actually he's worked back to Sharon Tate. I don't think he's wanted to tell the story about Sharon Tate. I think he's wanted to tell the story about the Manson family. Yes. And that because she's inevitably connected with it, then that's like, oh, well, that can be my ending. And then he got distracted and wrote a, a love letter to Hollywood instead. And, <laughs> and then went, oh, oh, what am I doing here? And tried to tie it all together in the last 40 minutes and failed. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, they said it's not, it's not an absolutely a love letter to Hollywood too because the way Al Pacino's character is talking about what movie studios and things and television companies do to actors... You know, it's yeah. not exactly full of love no. for the the town. It's weird. Um, yeah. yeah, I will be interested to come back to this um, and see it again. I'm certainly much more. I mean, I don't think I've revisited any of his other recent works because I didn't feel that I had any need to. I, I think I got everything I needed to out of *Inglorious Bastards* and *The Hateful Eight or on the, the first viewing. <laughs> I've never felt the need to go back to them. I, I will at some point go back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, just to see if I can reconfirm whether this is... Is this just a sort of surface level of depth that he's trying to get an illusion uh, an illusion of depth going on here and it's actually all surface, or is there something else there that I'm just not getting on that first viewing? Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I'll enjoy it just as much. But, yeah, it's, it's a qualified recommendation, but overall I did enjoy it, so I don't want to put anyone off. But, yeah, I just think it's weird. Yes, um, I, I can't disagree with that. It's weird, and it seems like I have, if not most, then many of the same concerns as you. Um, but also, just I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and does it need to be any more? I don't necessarily think so. But yeah, this Sharon Tate thing is the is what really sticks out. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Um, what does that add? Because I mean, you could have had. Like, have the Manson family be your victims and then just have them, you know, beaten up violently before they got anywhere near Sharon Tate. So she was never in the story. Yes. Yeah. Strange. He's always been quite a strange, very eloquent in Tarantino. Um, He also still makes films I enjoy, so there's that, I guess. Yes. But um, we do have some opinions from Twitter about this, Scott. Yes, uh, from at Blake Wrights, a perpetual dumb machine of the sadly lamented I'm the Host podcast, uh, about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He it's, It is at least a bit apart from the usual nostalgic back-patting of films about filmmaking. The ancillary elements, Bruce Lee, Manson cult, get odd fictionalisations, making no one a making one a blowhard and the other hippies for no apparent reason. I guess it's a continuation of his historical fiction project from Inglorious, so maybe I'm too out of touch with Hollywood mythologising to recognise its subversion. The most damning thing that I could say is that I didn't feel very invested to see it through till the 50% mark. He also really wanted his regular hit of Tarantino's storyteller-esque monologuing. He didn't get that here. So, yes, mixed reviews and... He also says, um, once upon a time in China, that he thinks it was probably one of the best in Jet Li's filmography. Comedy, pathos, action, solid choreography, one of his go-to wishes. And Mexico kind of has a similar feeling to China as the goofy end to an Evil Dead-esque progression towards bigger budget and more silliness. Nah, that's just crap. (laughs) (laughs) That's your lot then. That's us done for now. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with us to give us your opinions and whatnot... um, 
tell us what we're missing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and why Quentin Tarantino was exactly the man to tell the not story of Sharon Tate, <laughs> uh, please let us know. Do so through email podcast at fudsonfilm.com through Twitter, twitter.com slash fudsonfilm or you know, at fudsonfilm. You may also call that again. Yes. Also through Facebook, facebook.com Facebook do com, Facebook do com. I was trying to prevent you from going to Facebook. Film it's Facebook do com slash fuds on film. Um, Arise, count do com. That's not a memory of a film I want to come back to me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Scott's completely thrown me off my stride. There. Yes, we will see you in ten days for a compare and contrast episode. Good night or good morning, good afternoon, whatever part of the day you're in, uh, and. I'll speak to you next time. Bye. Unlimited power.